Hi, I'm Jim Strom from Castle Rock, Colorado. I just want Israel to know they're not alone, that we support their right in the land. We're behind you. I am Miro from Slovakia. In my country, this is a group among Christians who stand with Israel. Hello, I'm Peter. I'm here with my wife, Alison. We come from Cornwall in southwest England. I feel we have a heart for the Jewish people and what you're trying to do. Israel National Radio, spreading the light of Israel around the world. Welcome and shalom to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, and Israel. This is the Noahide Nation show right here on IsraelNationalRadio.com. I'm your co-host Ray Patterson, and of course uh, I'm here with my good friend and co-host Adam Penrod. How you doing, Ray? Hey, I'm doing good. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing awesome. Well, Adam, I'm kind of excited about this show because I feel like I'm going to be able to learn a lot from speaking with our next guest. So why don't you uh, tell the, the listeners uh, who we've got coming to join us. Well, we've got a great guest today and a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Joshua Golding. Um, he uh, actually is a, a philosophy professor at Bellarmine University. He's on sabbatical right now and is, is doing a research appointment through Haifa University. So uh, we've, got a, we've got a man who knows a lot about knowing. <laughs> and there's certainly uh, no need for uh, to have any shortage of that because certainly if, if we want to be in the know, we need to be in the know. And before we do, let's do a little housekeeping uh, before we bring in the good professor. And uh, let me share with everyone that, again, we appreciate your emails. We want you to continue sending in your questions, comments, your likes, your dislikes, your suggestions. Everything is wonderful, and we feel it's a blessing from Hashem. So please continue to send your emails in to Noahide at IsraelNationalRadio.com. So why don't you go ahead and bring in our guest, Adam. Hey, Dr. Dr. Golding, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's, it's so exciting to have you here. When I approached you about this, we, were going, we, we decided what we wanted to talk about today was uh, the Noahide Laws and Natural Law. And I was hoping you could actually kind of give us an idea, what, what is natural law? Well, um, the fact of the matter is that natural law is a term that gets used in many different ways by many different people. So um, I think what I'll try to do is give you one definition that I think is uh, a very common one or, or widely accepted one, but is not accepted by all people who use the term. Okay. And that would be the, the notion of natural law that we find in uh, Thomas Aquinas, who was a great Catholic theologian. He lived in the, um, oh, around the 1200s or so. And for him, natural law meant... A, a body of principles, practical principles, that all human beings, using their rational abilities and using ordinary experience, and by that I mean not relying on something like revelation. Again, so natural laws refers to a set of principles, practical, practical principles, that all human beings, using reason and ordinary experience, could know that would guide their behavior. And essentially what it means is a universal moral code, if you will, that Aquinas believed was natural law. In other words, we could discover it using our own reason without relying on revelation, and it was universally valid for all people at all times. So, I mean, for Aquinas, for example, um, let's say, um, you know, it's, it's, 
it's it's part of the natural law that one should uh, procreate and and uh, preserve life. That one should not murder. That one should engage in you know socially productive actions. So, for example, not um, not com not committing adultery would be part of the natural law, according to Aquinas. Um, but Aquinas also believed that um, using reason, human beings could discover that there is a God, that is to say, a supreme cause of the universe, who is a, a supreme being who created the world and sustains the world and is, in some sense, the author or the legislator of the natural law. So Aquinas also believed that um, part of the natural law is that one should seek to, to know God. But, of course... Um, Again, this is natural law. Anything that would that would be revealed, uh, for example, Aquinas being a Christian, for example, would say that you know any of the teachings of the New Testament, for example, that's not part of the natural law. That's part of revealed revealed law. So that that's the term. That's the sense of natural law that I think is the most common, commonly accepted by people who use the term. Um, you, no. you you don't have to be a theist. Could be a believer in natural law. You could, you could be an atheist. Theoretically, it's possible. I mean, there were people who are, there are people who are, not theists. People who believe in God. That is, there are people who are not theists but believe that there is such a thing as a natural law, uh, practical principles of morality that humans can discover um, without any sort of revelation. But of course, for, for atheists, there wouldn't be any natural law to come to know God because they believe there isn't one. Right. So that that's what that's how I would define the term natural law, at least for the purposes of discussion. Well, it sounds to me, Professor, that the natural laws uh, are something that are almost a, a, an intellectual exercise. But I'm curious that intellectual exercise has to spawn somewhere. Would you believe that this is basically from the environment? that we are raised in from, from children to adults? Because I, I know that there's some people that uh, when, when you say, you know, don't, don't steal, yes, that's a, a nice moral thought, but there's a lot of people in this world where theft is a way of life. And so it can become uh, just that. For them, it is a moral conclusion to steal to survive. Well, I mean, someone like Aquinas, would um, would say that uh, as a general rule, human beings universally would agree with what he thinks the natural law is, and there's have to be some kind of explanation for how people can become corrupted um, and and uh, fall away from the so-called natural law that he that he believes in. Um, but he would say that um, human nature is fixed, and human nature is we are by nature social creatures. He borrowed a lot from Aristotle, by the way. And he also thinks that um, since we're by nature social creatures, uh, living in society and engaging in socially productive actions and not engaging in antisocial behavior, as we call it today, that those things are things that basically all humans should agree to, would agree to, and there, there has to be some kind of explanation. You're right for people who, who, who think, oh well, it's a natural law to kill. Um, you know, I mean, not everybody agrees with Aquinas. So, you know, the kind of question you're raising is precisely one that critics of 
of the natural law theory would would bring up. You know, not everybody abides by these laws. So right. And, and it's, it's a valid point. Well, it seems like it could almost be interpretive that that based on your environment, based on your upbringing, that you learn these these traits and that you could consider virtually anything moral. It, it sounds like his conclusion is is that natural law is something that is based in the moral good of either yep. you, the individual, or, or of mankind. Is, is that, does that uh, sound correct? Well, yeah, I mean, basically I think what's going on with Aquinas is that deep down he has, um, there's some identification, if you will, of, of the good with being. That, now, that may sound a little bit vague, but in other words, um, anything that tends toward greater and greater being. Of course, for Aquinas, the greatest, the God is the greatest being of all, right? The supreme being is God. Well, it makes sense right? to me. One of the things that makes God so great is the fact that he's an eternal being, right? Right. Um, but um, that which promotes one's, the fulfillment of one's proper natural end, I mean, Aquinas believes in something that's called teleology, which is to say that human beings, right. by nature, have a certain end that is, that is what they are designed to achieve. And that end that we are designed to achieve, at least in this world, is to flourish as beings. That's to say, to realize our potential. Um, of course, Aquinas would add that through Christianity, uh, we also learn about uh, that man has, a, has another end, a supernatural end, but leaving that aside, because that goes beyond the natural law, right? And according to Aquinas, by nature, we're able to know that we as humans have a certain end that is proper to our nature. And developing ourselves and realizing our potential in the context of a society, is it, it's not just something that's in the environment or that's something that, you know, in, in one place or two places happens to be the case. It's for all human beings everywhere, we have the same natural end. And the natural law are, are those principles which will help us to realize our end. Dr. Golding, yeah. would you say that, that uh, Aquinas is, is pulling this primarily from Aristotle, or is he just, or is he just really impressed with rationality? What, where, does, where, 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 is, where is this coming from, this notion of natural law for him? Well, I mean, the notion, historically, the notion of natural law goes back to this group of uh, philosophers known as the Stoics, who were uh, not quite as ancient as Aristotle, but um, where, I mean, that's, that's just the sort of, where did he get it historically? I mean, I think what, what, what Aquinas was very impressed with, with reason, okay? He was very impressed with, with the Aristotle and the... Uh, some of the Greek ideas about how through reason man can live the best life. You know, that's like a classic Greek Enlightenment idea. But he also wanted to put that together with Christianity. And he saw, I think Aquinas saw in natural law a way of linking the Greek tradition of, um, you know, an enlightened way of living through reason with the notion that there's a supreme being who is in some sense the legislator of how we ought to behave. You see, because Aristotle doesn't seem to have the notion of natural law, and a lot of people say that's because, well, because he didn't have, a, he didn't have this kind of legislative type of God in his theology mm -hmm. or metaphysics. 
But Aquinas has God because he's a Christian. So he says, okay, well, God legislates the, the law for with the way all humans are supposed to behave, at least in this world, and that they're supposed to recognize that even without revelation. I don't know if I'm really answering your question. Where he got it from, there's some historical roots in Stoicism, and in, of course in, in Judaism and Christianity, there is a notion of, of, a, of a God who kind of lays down the law, right? Sure. And, and but he definitely was Aquinas, especially if I, if I may say, for, for a Christian thinker, he was very impressed with reason. Well, and, I, I, and I'm not trying to poke fun at Christians, but right. I mean, if you contrast him with Augustine and other Christian thinkers, right. Aquinas was was quite quite a rationalist. Right, which is which is a very difficult uh, approach in Christianity. Not not saying that uh, Christians are, are, are irrational, but but that there's definitely much more of an emphasis on 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 faith than on pure than on rationality. So. Aquinas sort of mm-hmm. stands out uh, from from the from his fellows. Yeah. So yeah. Let's let, let me ask you this now. I've actually heard, I've actually read and heard and, and that that there are those who would actually say that this concept of natural law that you you've laid out for us it appears in a lot of different cultures, and amongst Judaism, the way that natural law presents itself is as the Noahide laws. So what 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 is it that makes people think that the Noahide laws and natural law are are somehow um, identical? Okay, well I, I can give you a I think a good example of a of a Jewish thinker who asserted exactly what you're saying, and that was um, uh, Moses Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe your listeners are familiar with Mendelssohn a little bit. He was a uh, um, a Jewish thinker who lived, I believe, in the 1700s, and he was he's viewed as a sort of Jewish Enlightenment thinker, um, and he, he um, made several statements to the effect that, that the, the, the Noahide commandments are basically identical with the natural, with the natural law. Um, one of Mendelssohn's ideas was that... Uh, Basically, there is a kind of a religion of reason that all human beings, using reason, um, even without revelation, can sort of figure out what the best way of living is. And since in the Jewish tradition there is this idea of the Noahide law or Noahide commandments that, um, according to Judaism, is supposed to apply to all human beings, right? Not just Jews, in other words, right? right? But the Noahide commandments apply to all human beings. So because they are universally applicable, um, and also if you look at the content of the, of the Noahide commandments, which I'm sure a lot of your fam- uh, listeners are, are, are familiar with, the Noahide commandments include not to steal, not to murder, not to commit incest. So at least for those three of the seven Noahide commandments, they they um, they overlap with what classically people like uh, even someone like Aquinas would have said is part of the natural law. So, in other words, behaving morally, um, behaving in a way that's socially productive and not antisocial, that turns out to be something that you find in the Noahide commandments and in almost any philosopher's exposition of natural law would include those things. 
And since the Noahide commandments are supposed to be universally applicable, you know, they were supposedly, they were, according to Jewish tradition, they were given by God either to Noah directly or and or to Moses later to transmit to the, um, to the, to the world. So there's a universal applicability, and also a lot of them seem to be, or at least several of them, are exactly what the natural law theorists would have said apply to all humans. So there is a, I think that that's the, one of the, one of the reasons for saying that the Noahide law is the same thing is it's sort of the Jewish version of the natural law because of the universal applicability and because uh, some of the content of the Noahide law fits very well with what classical law, natural law theorists have said is part of the natural law. Well, seeing as we've already gone there, uh, before you continue on, I might take a quick time out just to uh, review what the seven categories of the seven Noahide laws are, just in case we have any new listeners. It'll give them an idea and uh, a means to associate with what you're speaking of. So, Adam, why don't you go ahead and share that with our our audience? Okay, there are um, six prohibitions and one positive commandment regarding the Noahide laws. Um, There's a prohibition against against idolatry, against blasphemy, against theft, against murder, against any sort of illicit sexual relationship, um, against eating the limb of a living animal. And then there's a positive commandment to, uh, to establish courts of justice. And, of course, when you hear all of these, they do seem to make rational, intellectual sense that for, the, the, for, for a good life that's productive and harmonious with our fellow man, uh, these would certainly, the majority of them would certainly qualify for that. And then, of course, we have the others that uh, basically is how to you know, have a relationship with, with Hashem. So, so my question, Doctor, is can you share with uh, our audience what are the differences between the notion of natural laws and the seven Noahide laws? Okay, well, first of all, without getting into the, the content of the, the Noahide laws, I think we have to understand that um, according to the Jewish tradition, the Noahide commandments are commandments that are given, that are revealed commandments. God commands Noah, God commands Moses to tell the, the rest of the world, um, maybe we can go into that some other time, but, or, or maybe you've talked about that issue, but either way, the, the Noahide commandments from a Jewish perspective are um, commands that are revealed by God to the world. I personally believe, okay, here's where I'll give you a little bit of my take on this, is that the Noahide commandments... Uh, I feel, go beyond natural law. I I think it's a mistake to identify the Noahide law with natural law. And the reason I believe that is because, or one reason I believe that is because the natural law consists in principles that that human beings rationally are able to figure out, supposedly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the Noahide commandments are things that God has commanded upon the people above and beyond, even if they're the same thing, their meaning is now transformed by the fact that they are now a matter of a command. Uh, you see what I'm saying? In other words, it's like if I could just if I could give an analogy. Let's suppose that I I somehow figure out or realize that my wife 
you know, um, wants me to to cook dinner once a week. So I start doing it on my own because I've sort of figured out rationally that that's what she wants me to do. Contrast that with, let's suppose my wife says, honey, I really want you to make dinner for me every week once a week. Now, maybe that's not the same thing as a divine command. But um, the difference is when you do something because it's rational, that's fine, that's great. But when you do something because it's a divine command, that transforms what you're doing into something that I believe is 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 much higher. It's it's definitely it definitely changes the significance of what you're doing. It doesn't it doesn't wipe away what you were doing. It transforms it into something higher. So I think it's a, it's a mistake to 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 collapse natural law into Noahide law because one is one is coming from a place of divine command and revelation, and one is coming from a place of I could figure out on my own that this is kind of the right thing to do. Right, and you know, um, oh, that, that's one. That's one reason why I think the two should not be collapsed. I have other reasons, but uh, maybe you have a f- question or a comment. You know, it's, it's interesting what you're what you're saying here because uh, it seems even within the, the writings of the Rambam, who who himself is is held as, as very much a rationalist, that uh, he he makes it a point. Well, for example, in Hilkot Malachim, the laws of kings in their wars, eight eleven, he, he writes that. Um, but if they, the Noahide laws, are done because the mind tends toward them, this is not a Gertoshav, and he is not from the pious of the people um, of the world, rather from their wise. So he, so he, he seems to be making a very much a, a point similar to what you're saying, that this, yeah. uh, you know, maybe you could speak on that a little bit. No, I, I, I think that that, I, I stated this as kind of my own take, but I, I really, uh, my, this perspective that I'm trying to, this sort of spin I'm trying to give is very much motivated by, or inspired by, by the passage in Maimonides that you're referring to. What Maimonides says there is, is, I've just stated in different words, is Maimonides is saying is these things basically make sense, you know, they, they make sense to do. But if you do them just because they make sense to do, then you're not doing them as a means of worship of God. Yeah. Right? If you if you do it even if it's the same action, you know, if you if you don't murder or you establish courts of justice because it's rational to do, that's fine and great. You're in the category of a wise man and you're living a a, a decent life. But you're not worshiping God. Doctor, yes, oh, forgive, forgive me. We're hitting the, the break real hard here, so we're going to have to wrap this up, and we'll definitely uh, bring you back because we want to kind of finish this for the second segment. But we need to let Israel National Radio pay a few bills sure. here, and we're going to duck on out for a few minutes. Folks, stick with us. You're listening to Noahide Nations here on IsraelNationalRadio.com. See you in a few minutes. I used to get up all the time at night to go to the bathroom. It was driving me crazy. I tried every different kind of prescription medication out there. Finally, I found Preso brand Apuntima. It comes in men's and women's formulas, is an all-natural herbal remedy that helps with urinary problems. Get Preso. It helped me, and it can help you too. 
Visit preso.com. That's preso.com. <coughs> We interrupt this broadcast to bring you an important announcement. The T and the other T as well are back together on Israel National Radio. TNT, live together on your dial. Tune in this Tuesday, 10 to 11 p.m. Israel time, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tamar or Tovia, and Tovia or Tamar. It's the one and the only Yona Singer TNT Explosive. Tune in this Tuesday. Well, welcome back, everybody. We appreciate you sticking around here for the second half of the Noahide Nation show here on Israel National Radio. And we've got a, a rather interesting guest here, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Joshua Golding, which, uh, Adam, uh, I understand that you know him personally. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I uh, lived in Louisville and uh, was able to make the acquaintance of uh, Dr. Golding and uh, We had dialogues about Judaism and philosophy on many different occasions. It was always fun. Now, Dr. Golding, I want to get back to what we were talking about right before the break, and we were actually discussing the Rambam's comment in Hilkot Malachim 8.11, and you were expounding on this and, and how it related to the notion of collapsing the Noahide laws and the natural law in together. Can you... Can you pick that up a little bit? And uh... well, I'll, I'll try. Yeah, I was uh, what I was trying to say. I think was that um, the fact that the Rambam says that uh, he says again that uh, if you keep the Noahide commandments, but you only do them because they make sense, then you are uh, from the wise of the nations. Wise, you're wise. You're living a good, a good, decent life. But it's only if you keep them because they are commanded. In other words, for the sake of, as it were, worshiping God almost through obeying these commandments, doing them, if you do them because they are commanded by God, then you as a Noahide have a share in the world to come. That's, that's what Maimonides says in that passage you're referring to. And actually this passage bothered Moses Mendelssohn very much. He didn't, he didn't really like this passage because he wanted to believe that any human being anywhere in the world who just behaves morally is somehow automatically has a share in the world to come. And I think, you know, a lot of people can probably see where he's coming from on that. But what I would say is that um, what, what, what the lesson that Maimonides is, is in effect communicating to us is that the purpose of the Noahide commandments is not just to live a good life. The purpose of the Noahide commandments is to enable the Noahide to have a certain kind of relationship with God. It's right. not just about living a good life here. It's about having a relationship with God that will translate into uh, a continued relationship in the next world. So this, this, I think, is evidence. In other words, Maimonides' passage that you referred to is evidence, in effect, that we should not try to collapse the Noahide law and the natural law. That the Noahide law is about having a relationship with the Almighty, as well as living a good life right. in the here and now, so to speak. Well, you know, you know um, during the break, you, know, you and I were talking a little bit uh, about this idea, and the question I asked you, and you gave, a, I thought, a very interesting response, and I'd like to uh, make that same response to the listeners. 
I asked you, well, given what the Rambam says here, why is there even a, an, an internal debate within within the Jewish people uh, regarding this question? You know, why, why is there even a question, you know, within the context of Judaism well, that... Well, first of them? all, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but, I mean, first of all, not, not all Jews uh, necessarily accept, you know, the Rambam's views on these things. Right. Um, Mendelssohn wrote a letter to Yaakov Emden, who was one of the great rabbis living at the time, and asked him, where did the Rambam, where did Maimonides get this idea from? I mean, the idea of the Noahide commandments is in the Talmud. That's much, you know, know, an ancient idea. The idea that the Noahide has a share in the world to come if he keeps the Noahide commandments, that's also in the Talmud. But Maimonides came along and said, well, it's only if he does them because they are commandments that he gets the next world. Right. Right. So Mendelssohn found that you know position to be not well. According to him, he thought that that position was not well grounded in the Talmud. And uh, Jacob Emden, at the time when he answered him, defended Maimonides' position. Um, we have the responses, which are interesting. The exchange of letters between Mendelssohn and Emden. We, we still have those things. But Emden did not was not able to locate a source in the Talmud. Um, subsequently, it turns out, interestingly enough, that there were some manuscripts discovered in I think the 30s, 1930s, of um, some midrashic source which actually says pretty much what the Rambam said. So it wasn't really the Rambam just making it up. Apparently, he had a he had a rabbinic, a much more ancient source for it. But to go back to your question, I mean, not everybody agrees with the Rambam on everything, especially on comments like these. I, I mean, I, 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 like I said, I, my personal view is tends to agree. I agree. Who am I to agree with the Rambam? But anyway, <laughs> my personal view is that it makes sense to say that the Noahide commandments are about something that goes beyond the natural law. Um, but I, I can sort of see why someone would be tempted to think that um, by being a good human being, I'm doing enough in God's eyes somehow. I don't don't agree with it. I don't think it's doing enough. I think that that to have a relationship with God, you have to acknowledge God as a, as a, as it were, as a person and have a sort of a relationship of acknowledgement and obedience to God uh, in order to have a fully-fledged relationship with with him. So that view makes more sense to me, but I can kind of see why people are, you know, I mean, one of the problems you have, for example, is what about all the people who have never heard about the Noahide commandments? This is something that bothered Mendelssohn a lot. You know, there are people living in the North Pole. Well, maybe not the North Pole, but I mean, there are people living all over the world who have never heard about the Noahide commandments. Sure. And now, so now, according to Maimonides, even if they're decent human beings, so to speak, if they're, they're not killing, they're not stealing, let's suppose that they're not pagans, they're not worshipping idols, but they still don't get the next world. So Mendelssohn thought that that, that wasn't fair, if you will. Right. So that's the motivation <clears throat> for his view. But, but, but you know, I think, I think you can answer that a, a different way. I, I think that uh, there does seem to be this notion in Judaism that if you don't have a chance... To, to hear the, the proper message, then, I mean, God being the just judge that he is, is going to take that into consideration. Well, I, I uh, think there's... doesn't say that, though. 
Oh. No, he, he doesn't. You're entirely correct. Yeah. But I, I do believe that um, Maimonides, without saying as much, there is some latitude in there because certainly Avraham, he never had a Torah. Okay, He observed creation around him and was able to come out of idolatry to the idea, the concept, the belief of one single true creator of all things. And I think in many cultures, even without having a, you know, a Torah, a humash sitting up on a shelf, and having never read that, I think, it, like you were saying earlier, you can reasonably deduce proper laws in, in which to live in harmony with your fellow man. At the same time, you can also have a revelation just through the observance of creation and that which is around you, which in and of itself is is miraculous. So I I would think that you would be able to take what Rambam is saying, and even though they may not call their creator Hashem or or Adonai or or, what have you, there would still be this concept internalized of a creator of all things. Am I making sense, or am I just so far out in left field I need to call the rubber truck? Well, no, I think you're, you're, that's a very interesting, it's an interesting line of thinking, and, and I, I don't know if Maimonides would go for it, though. Well, I mean, and uh, that may be true. This, this, I, it sounds, huh? Well, this is so interesting. I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I, I'm just saying that I don't, I don't it's hard to, I, I don't think, I don't suspect that Maimonides would, you're using the term revelation now in, in a very, um, a very generous way, you know, where <laughs> e- even without a Chumash and without a Torah, I would, I would have a sort of quote unquote. You're using the word revelation in in scare quotes, as we say, uh-huh. right? I mean, it's not that you actually God told you don't do this or do that. It's you sort of imagine or dream that this is kind of what God would want if He did exist, and if he, if He were to tell me something, this is what I this is what He would tell me. If I'm on the North Pole and I never saw a Humash or a Torah and I just look around and I, I conclude, hmm, there must be a God and if God existed, he wouldn't want me to do this and he wouldn't want me to do that and he would want me to do this and then if I keep those things, so then that counts as doing them out of a sense of obedience. But I've never been, I never actually, you know, knew as a fact that God revealed these things to me. So it's kind of like a hypothetical type of observance in a way. But how, I don't know, maybe maybe it would work. However, I would say that I will present this idea that the Rambam does say. Now I could I could probably see your objection, but the Rambam does say that a person who commits a sin but doesn't know that it's a sin, that they're not punished for it. And so a person who commits idolatry, for example, but doesn't realize idolatry is not a sin. Of course, we're not we're not talking about punishment. We're talking about the world to come, the ultimate reward. So there's actually a, a distinction here between a reward and, and punishment. So uh, maybe a person... Yeah. See, now I'm thinking out loud. See, now I've got my own... So maybe a person can escape from punishment, but maybe what the Rambam saying is, okay, so you're not being punished, but you're also not being rewarded. Right. I, I think the Rambam's view is that through... Yeah, it's not a... If you keep the command... If you are a decent human being and you live a good life... That, that's fine. It, it's not that you're being punished by not getting the next world. But you have to, I think, according to Rambam, and this is this, the same thing I think is true for Jews, too, that is to say that according to the Rambam, 
the way you get to the next world is by achieving it, by, by doing something that enables you to get to the next world. Uh, it doesn't, it's not just something that automatically happens. I, I know there's passages in the, in the Talmud that, that seem to imply that all Jews are automatically going to the next world no matter what. Right. But I, I, I think the Rambam's view is that you basically have to earn your spot in the next world by doing certain things that, that, that enable you to have a relationship with the eternal. God is the eternal being. And by relating in a certain way to the eternal being, that's how you achieve eternal life. And if you don't take the steps, whether through your own fault or whether through someone else's fault, if you don't take those steps to relate to the eternal properly, you, can't, you just can't make it to the, to the next world because you haven't managed to take the steps. You know, God could put you in the next world, but then it wouldn't be you. It would be something else that God has, has radically altered mm. in order to find a spot for him in the next world. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Yes. In order for your soul to go to the next world, you need to do something that's going to... You're the one who's the actor. You're, you, the agent, are your soul. So if you're going to go to the next world, you have to do something that connects you with the eternal. And if you don't do it and God does it for you, then he's really, then it's really not you anymore. Right. You see what I'm saying? So I, I think that according to Maimonides, unless you actively and, and intentionally... Maimonides is very much a rationalist in the sense that, according to him, the human being, the essence of the human being is essentially, is essentially the intellect. Let me... Let and me. So, but anyway... Let me let me switch gears just a little bit. We're yes, you know we're, we're we're heading towards the end of the show now. You've written about this. You've actually presented a paper on this in Notre Dame, and you're actually taking that paper that you presented. And you're actually expanding on. Could you talk to, talk to us a little bit about this? What what is it that fascinates you about the subject, and uh, what was the what was it exactly you presented at, at Notre Dame? Well, what I I don't I'm not I don't know if I can explain why the subject is so interesting to me. That's a really hard question. I, I, I can tell you that pretty much um, what, the, what the paper was about, what the, what the presentation was about, and what the paper I'm working on uh, is about is precise issue of does it make sense either both from a Jewish point of view and from sort of a rational point of view, a philosophical point of view, does it make sense to try to identify or collapse the distinction between the Noahide commandments and the natural law? Mm. Um, I believe, I guess one of the things, one of the things that uh, does sort of inspire me or, or make me sort of anxious to, to, to deal with this issue is that I think that it's important for, for Noahides or people who are interested in the Noahide law to realize that the Noahide law is more than natural law. It's a way of relating to God. It's it's not just being a good human being. It's more than that. It's having a certain kind of relationship with the Almighty that the Noahide has offered this tremendous opportunity. And that's kind of what, I'm, what excites me. Now, in the paper, I discuss Mo Moses Mendelssohn. I discuss there's a fellow named uh, Elijah ben Amozeg, who was a rabbi in Livorno, I think, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, he also had this idea that somehow the natural law and the Noahide law uh, were the same thing. So I discuss some of their views and some of their arguments, and then I try to show um, why it's problematic to identify 
the Noah Haida natural law. Another thing I discussed in the paper, which is really something we haven't discussed so much in this in this uh, interview here um, in this segment, is what what about natural law itself? Does Judaism endorse or is it compatible with Judaism to believe in some kind of natural law theory? That's a question in itself, mm. even putting aside the question of how does the Noahide law relate to the natural law. Right. In other words, you see what I'm saying? You could believe that there is a natural law theory that somehow Judaism fosters and still believe, as I do, that the Noahide law is a step beyond the natural law. Or you can have, you have, many, you have some Jewish thinkers who try to deny that there is such a thing as natural law, that natural law is incompatible with Judaism. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are writers, scholars, Marvin Fox is a famous uh, thinker, philosopher, that died not so long ago. He, I think he taught at Brandeis. He argued that according to Judaism, the notion of natural law doesn't even make sense. Forget mm-hmm. about whether it's the same thing as natural law. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, as Noahide law. Right, he right. argued that Judaism is incompatible with natural law. I, think, I don't think that's correct either. Well, I think is proof of that, and, and I know where he's coming from, but we have to remember that Hashem, with his people in the desert, was teaching them not only how to have relationship with him by virtue of having them build the tabernacle, but he was also teaching them how to become a nation. And without having the civil side, you can't have a nation. You, you can't coexist in a harmonious fashion if you do not have a system of justice in which to uh, engage the, the, the community when you know things are, are wrong, things that are, are committed are, are, are sins and they need to be addressed. And I think what it does show, with to me anyway, is that uh, Hashem is absolutely infinite in the fact that he's able to take his Torah, which is instruction, and incorporate both the spiritual side and the civil side, if you will, and combine the two. And for me, anyway, that is how I understand how this gentleman is thinking when he says that that Judaism is not compatible with natural law. Because, in in a way, uh, he's, he's correct, because natural law is derived through your own thought and intellectual process. Whereas what he is saying, it is actually divinely given, even though it has both aspects of a spiritual and physical way of instruction. But you know, Ray, I think that uh, just what we read from the Rambam in Hilkom Malachim, I think the Rambam, the Rambam at least it seems like to me, might hold open the possibility that you could have a natural law, but... Natural law, whatever, isn't the same thing as getting into the world to come. What do, what do you think about that, Dr. Golding? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right about Maimonides' view is that even if there is such a thing as natural law, it should not be confused with the Noahide commandments. I, I I'm not sure I followed Ray's argument there about um, he seemed like he was trying to support Marvin Fox's perspective that, that Judaism doesn't accept a notion of natural law. Let, let me let me ask you this question. Um, uh, it seems from many of the stories in Genesis that that um, human beings are treated as if they are supposed to realize on their own that certain things are right or wrong, even though God hasn't told them. For example, um, it seems that you know Cain kills Abel, right? Right. Um, but there's 
and then he's kind of punished for it. You know, he's God says, you know, where's your brother? And, and then he ends up exiling him. But we don't have a prior command against murder. Somehow Cain is supposed to realize that he's not supposed to kill his brother. And, for example, in the story of the flood, the people are wiped out in the flood except for Noah. It says, you know, that the people were bad and they were corrupt, and therefore God said, what the heck's going on? I'm destroying these people. Except for Noah, because he's, he's righteous, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no, prior, there's no prior mention in the text of the scriptures. There's no prior mention of any prohibition against theft or against incest. It's only later that, you know, we find that after Noah comes out of the ark, you're not supposed to murder. You know, there's other commandments, of course, later on. Uh, you know, when, with the story with Abraham, when he has this interchange with God um, about the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, because Abraham says, you know, are you really going to kill this, you know, wipe out the city? Maybe there's a few righteous people there. So evidently, it's assumed that human beings have some kind of sense of justice or, or right or wrongness that they're supposed to know, even without having been told prior by God, don't do this and don't do that. Well, but to me, that seems like a, a, I don't know if it's a knockdown, drag out argument, but it seems <laughs> like a pretty good argument that, according to Judaism, humans are somehow supposed to know that certain things they're not supposed to do, even without having been told. Well, and I think, and I don't want to really get into this because we're coming up to the end of the show here, and this discussion would really launch us into another hour easily. But I know that from the text of the Zohar, they speak of the angel uh, Layla, uh, who is in in charge of the unborn children. And when the uh, children are growing inside the womb, they're actually learning Torah. At the point of the birth of the child, Layla touches the child's lips, and then that what that which they have learned goes back into the subconscious. In other words, it still exists, only it is now a subconscious level rather than a conscious so, level. So, sounds very Socratic. <laughs> like I said, Re- it, it would be another hour before Re- we could get out of this. Re- rediscovering <laughs> knowledge that we had before we were born. But yes. Well, uh, so anyway, and you know that's a whole other study unto itself, but it is certainly something that, who knows, maybe we ought to do something with that with uh, a rabbi who is well-versed in it. But in, in the meantime, uh, Don, Dr. Golding, it has been absolutely wonderful, and I definitely would like to have you back so that we can continue this discussion. It's it's absolutely fascinating and and mind-boggling at points. Uh, but for now, we're yeah. going to have to say goodbye, and I and I do want to say thank you very much for being a part of our show today. Well, you're quite welcome, and I really enjoyed it. And good luck to you all. Well, thank you. And for all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for uh, being here with us today. Uh, Adam and I thoroughly enjoy being able to bring this type of information to you. And we want to say have a great week. Shavuot Tov. And until we see you next time here on Noahide Nations, please remember, always look to the heavens for your strength in Hashem because, my friends, He is truly always looking out for you. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Help Israel National Radio by writing a customer review on iTunes. It's a free way to help support Israel and the shows you love on iTunes so other people 
can also discover us. Israel National Radio is listener-supported radio. Show us you care by donating to your favorite free internet radio. Broadcasting the truth live from Israel. Click on Support Us on the top of IsraelNationalRadio.com. For the past 40 years, Baruch Nachshon has been creating his colorful paintings in the holy city of Hebron. There's nothing like his paintings. His paintings are one of a kind. Now the picture of your dreams can be in your living room. Click on www.nachshonartstore.com and Baruch's symbolic, surrealist, visionary creations can be yours. You have golden hands, you use them. And he has golden hands. Baruch Nachshon lithographs, posters, books, and more. Bright colorful, intense visions of Hebron, Jerusalem, and other Jewish themes. That's www.nachshonartstore.com Borch Nachshon is a genius in his work. <laughs> Hi, this is Woody Woodpecker, and I always listen to Israel National Radio, your connection to Israel. Israel National Radio The popular voice of the people of Israel 